Good morning. I hope you're all well this morning. I don't know about you, but in the Parkinson household, we are missing uh, seeing everyone. Uh, we're missing meeting together at the church, uh, but we're thankful this morning, aren't we, that we have God's word. Uh, and we're thankful that we can come around God's word together to hear from him uh, and to be encouraged and built up in the faith. Should we pray uh, before we turn to God's word? Let's pray. Dear Father, we're thankful that as we uh, come to your word this morning, we can come uh, with thankful hearts. Lord, we're thankful that even in difficult times, we have many reasons uh, for joy and many reasons for hope. We're thankful this morning uh, that, that the Lord Jesus is still on the throne. We thank you that he is ruling and he is working all things out together for our good. Father, we're thankful that we can trust you, that you are good and you are faithful. Lord, we pray for us this morning as we look into your word. Would you strengthen our faith in the Lord Jesus? Father, we pray that you would uh, speak to each one of us as we need. Build us up, we pray, and remind us of who you are and what you have done for us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. It's really easy, isn't it, with all of the changes that have been going on the last few weeks uh, to lose track of time. I found myself often questioning what day it is, uh, what date it is, whether we're at the start of the month or at the end of the month. Uh, the weeks tick by, but with many of our usual activities on hold, it feels like the calendar has been paused. Two weeks today will see us at Easter Sunday. We've been going through this letter that Paul wrote to Timothy, but over the next few weeks, we're going to stop our studies in 1 Timothy and we're going to give our attention to the theme of Easter. We're going to be thinking about the cross and the resurrection, particularly the cross. We're going to spend uh, four Sundays considering four words. We're going to do a word each Sunday and each of these words is going to help us understand what God has accomplished through the death and resurrection of Jesus. In some ways, uh, the cross is like a diamond. One of the largest diamonds that's ever been found is the Cullinan diamond. It weighs over 3,000 carats. It was found just over 100 years ago. It was a rough diamond, but then it was taken, it was cut into several smaller diamonds. If you could get your hands on any one of those diamonds, Today, first of all, you'd need lots and lots of money, millions of pounds. But also, if you got your hands on one, you'd be able to turn it over in your hands and examine it from different angles. You'd be able to see its beauty in different lights. You'd be able to behold the different colours as the light ref refracted through it in different ways. The death of Jesus is of infinitely greater value and infinitely greater beauty than all the diamonds in the world but as with a diamond so it is when we come to God's word we're called to see the cross from many different angles we're called to see its beauty from many different viewpoints and these four words that we're going to look at over the next four weeks are going to help us to do that. What are the words? The first word, the word we're going to look at today is propitiation. The second word is redemption. The third is justification. And the fourth is reconciliation. Now, these are not four opposing ways of looking at the cross and we have to pick one over the others. 
These are four complementary ways, all help us to understand what God has achieved in our salvation. They each look at the cross from a different perspective and help us see what is going on. So this morning's word that we're going to consider is propitiation. So let's read from Romans. Uh, We're going to read Romans chapter 3. And we're going to read verses 21 to 26. Romans 3, 21 to 26. If you've got a Bible in your homes there, it'd be worth having it open in front of you. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in God. As we think about this word propitiation this morning, uh, we're going to think about it under three questions, really. The first is propitiation, what is it? The second is propitiation, who makes it? And the third is propitiation, how is it made? So first of all, propitiation, what is it? This passage that we've just read, it's all about being made right with God, being, being put into a, a right relationship with God. You can see that word justified as well. That's another word that means the same thing. And the focus of our attention really is going to be particularly on verses 24 and 25, but mainly on verse 25. So let me just read those couple of verses again. It says that we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. You can see that word propitiation there in in verse 25. And some new Bibles may have sacrifice of atonement instead of propitiation. But I think that translation sacrifice of atonement misses the, the kind of the mark when it comes to translating the word. The word atonement, it, it, it comes from three English words put together, at, one, make. Atonement, it means making us and God one, bringing us back together. That doesn't quite capture uh, the word uh, that is also translated propitiation. So what is propitiation? Propitiation, it's not a word we use very often, is it? I'd be really surprised if anyone's used the word propitiation uh, in the last week in everyday conversation. So what does it mean? Propitiation means to appease or to pacify someone's anger. It's usually used with reference to a deity. So to propitiate God is to do something to turn away God's anger. Now we're jumping into this letter in in chapter 3, near the end of the chapter 3, but Paul has already written about God's anger. His letter opens, first of all, with a theme of the gospel. This is the good news announcement that Jesus Christ is Lord. 
And in verse 16, Paul says that he's not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. He goes on in verse 17 to say that in the gospel, the righteousness, that's the, the rightness of God is revealed. And as he goes on to explain this good news, that the first step along uh, the road to understanding the good news is a strange one. It's an unexpected one. He writes in verse 17 that the good news reveals God's righteousness. And then he goes on in verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and the unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So God reveals his, his rightness in the gospel. And if we're going to begin to understand the gospel and grasp the good news, we must understand, Paul says, that God is angry with unrighteous, ungodly people. We maybe have to do a little bit of thinking to, to get clear what we mean when we say that God is angry. Some people think it's perverse to teach that God is angry. They have the idea that because God is love, he couldn't possibly get angry. Well, they think that this talk of a propitiation and an appeasing an angry God comes from kind of ancient paganism. It's all a bit primitive. It comes from times past when people felt they needed to give offerings of food or animals, or sometimes even ch their own children to satisfy a bad-tempered, irritable God who is bringing famine or disease upon their village. But both of those ideas grossly misunderstand God's anger. God's anger is not like ours. All sorts of things make us angry. We can be bad-tempered, we can be irritable. We might get angry when things aren't going our way. We might get angry when someone steps on our toe. We might get angry when someone cuts us up on the motorway or when they offend our pride. Our anger is so up and down, isn't it? What makes us angry today might not make us angry tomorrow. That's if we've had enough sleep and we've not got a headache. And when we get angry, we're tempted to, to lash out, maybe with our tongue, maybe with our fists. We might want to hurt others or, or to make them pay. That's the kind of anger that people thought to characterize these pagan deities. But God's anger is nothing like that. God doesn't fly off the handle when he's angry. God's anger is, is constant. His anger is his righteous anger against all that is not right. It is a holy anger that is always and only provoked by evil. John Stott writes this, he writes, God's anger is his steady, unrelenting, unremitting, uncompromising opposition to evil in all its forms. Our anger is he's provoked by lots of things, but God's anger is provoked by evil and only evil. And so far from being at odds with his love, God's anger is in perfect harmony with his holy love. It is because God is a God of holy love that he's also a God of holy anger. Imagine this for a moment. Picture the, the, the father who has a daughter who he dearly loves. 
And now imagine this daughter starts to make unwise decisions and begins to walk down a road that's going to cause her a lot of hurt. Would you think much of that father's love if he was unmoved by the hurt that he saw his daughter embracing? Would you think him loving if he did not oppose his daughter's foolish decisions? And what about if he found out there was an influence in his daughter's life, a man who'd wormed his way into her affections, who was intent to do her harm? Would you think that he loved his daughter if he was not also angry with this man? And so God's anger is his righteous, holy anger against all that is unrighteous. And the problem we have and the problem that Paul has shown us in these first three chapters of Romans is that we are unrighteous. He tells us clearly that we've all rebelled against God. We've turned away from him and we've turned in on ourselves. We've all lived in God's world, enjoyed the life that God has given, but we've lived it in our own way. And God is angry with us, with all of us. And it's right that he's angry with us. This is the same for religious people or irreligious people. This is the same for people who think they are good and people who know they are bad. Look at verse 23. We have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the fact that we are under God's anger is our greatest problem. The biggest problem we face is not the failure of our health. The biggest problem that we face is not that we might catch the virus. Our biggest problem is not a lack of finances or low self-esteem. Our biggest problem isn't even the pain and the sorrow that comes because of our sin and the sin of others. Our biggest and greatest problem is that we provoke God's anger. Now, we might not think that we are that bad. We might think there are other people God should be angry with, the murderers or the rapists. But we're all sinners. And the way, while the way we go about expressing that sin may be different... The fact remains we are all sinners. We have all provoked God's anger and there's nothing that we can do to turn it away. There's nothing that we can do to propitiate God. He cannot simply overlook our sin and unrighteousness and pretend it's not there for then he would not be holy and righteous and loving. One author writes, the obstacle to forgiveness is not sin or guilt alone. It is the holy, righteous love of God. So what is propitiation? It's the appeasement of God's anger. Secondly, propitiation, who achieves it? I've made clear there, it's obvious we do not achieve propitiation. We're the ones who have provoked God's anger. We cannot now turn it away. It's not as though we can bribe God with a gift or twist his arm. The pagans have Paul's day, they brought their gifts and their sacrifices, trying to placate their deities. Maybe if they gave enough food, he wouldn't be angry. The Jews of Paul's day, they thought if they obeyed the law, if they just tried to be good enough, maybe then they could turn away God's anger. But the truth is, we cannot make propitiation. It's God who must make propitiation. He must take the initiative, and he has done. Let me read Again, verses 24 and 25. And we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation. 
This is not people giving gifts to try to appease God's anger. This is the Lord God coming to us in the person of Jesus Christ to turn back his own anger. The image that helps us understand this word propitiation is the image of the the animals sacrificed in the temple precincts. Far from being something that the worshipper did for God, it was something that God provided for the worshipper. You can see this dynamic for the sacrifices for sin in the Old Testament. They were provided by God, given by him. Let me read to you Leviticus 11, uh, 17, verse 11. These describe these sacrifices. It says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. The sacrifice was given by God as a way to make atonement. It's clear in here in verse 25 of Romans chapter 3 that it's God who takes the initiative. It was God that put Jesus Christ forward as the propitiation. It's also clear in 1 John 4 verse 10, another verse where we read of the propitiation that God has made. This is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sin. It is God who makes propitiation. God the Father sends God the Son. And why does he do it? It's because God is a God of love and grace. God's love is the source, not the consequence of his propitiation. The atonement didn't make God gracious, but it was provided because God is gracious. To put it another way, God does not turn his own anger away so that he can love us. He provides propitiation because he loves us. So who achieves it? It's God who achieves it. He comes to us in the person of Jesus Christ. So propitiation, what is it? The appeasement of God's anger. Propitiation, who achieves it? It's God who achieves it through Jesus Christ. Propitiation, how is it achieved? Verse 25, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. Propitiation is achieved through the cross, through the blood of Jesus. It's through him giving his life on the cross. In home groups, we're going through Mark's gospel. And the last time we met together, we looked at the Last Supper. And just after this, in chapter 14, we see Jesus in Gethsemane. He's hours away from the cross and he knows what awaits. And in the upper room, he's given his disciples a cup to drink. He said, this is the blood of the covenant. It's a covenant that will mean the forgiveness of sins for the disciples. But there in the Garden of Gethsemane, he begins to talk about another cup. A cup that Jesus will drink, a cup that is associated with the hour that is coming when he will be crucified. And as Jesus thinks about this cup, this cup overwhelms him with sorrow. He prays to his father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not my will, but your will be done. What is this cup? Well, it's the cup of God's wrath. And it's described in very vivid terms in Jeremiah 25. It's described as a sword, as a curse, as a, as a cup that lays waste and a cup that makes ruin. And it's the cup that all mankind deserves to drink. Here in Mark 14, the cup comes to the son. He's the only one who did not deserve to drink it. 
He was the only one who was holy and perfect. And yet God the Son will drink it willingly and he will do it to make propitiation. And as the Son hangs on the cross, his blood pouring out and his life ebbing away, he drinks that cup down. And if we want to, to begin to glimpse the mystery of what it meant for Jesus to drink that cup, maybe just think of all the, the places in the Bible where we see God's anger poured out. Think of the plagues, think of the flood, think of the exile. And all of the terrors involved in those, they were mere vapours coming from the cup. But here, here on the cross, the son drinks the cup down and, and you hear the agony as he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? At the cross, God makes propitiation through the blood of Jesus. And when we see when we see this, it helps us understand like nothing else that sin matters. Sin is not unimportant. It's not just a small and private matter. When I look at the cross and hear Jesus cry out in agony, I must say that my sin is not small, it is big. Once I understand how my sin has provoked God's anger. And what it took to make propitiation, I can never treat sin lightly or play it down. Our sin is, is not small, it is big. So that's propitiation, what it is. It's appeasement of God's righteous anger. Who, who makes propitiation? It's God who makes propitiation because we never could. How does he do it? Well, he, he does it through the blood of Jesus. At the cross, he directs against his own self in the person of his son, the full weight of his righteous anger that we deserve. Let's maybe in these a few minutes uh, before before we finish, let's just move and think about some applications. I think the first application as we look at these verses is I want to encourage you to take God at his word. Take God at his word. He, he tells us here in Romans chapter 1 that his anger is revealed against unrighteousness and ungodliness. And that means his anger is directed towards us. But we also know from the verses that we have looked at that we see that God has satisfied his own anger through the blood of Jesus. Then, as you go on and you read the rest of verse 25, it says that this propitiation, this gift, the Lord Jesus and all that he has achieved is to be received by faith. We are called to place our confidence in Jesus. So let me encourage you again this morning to take God at his word. Don't, don't shrug this off and pretend it doesn't matter. To do that is to remain under God's anger. In fact, it just provides further incriminated evidence that we are indeed godless and unrighteous. A gift is given so that it may be received. Take God at his word and receive his gift of grace. Turn to Jesus, embrace him and thank him for dealing with your greatest problem. I suspect most of us listening this morning 
have received the Lord Jesus and we've come to put our confidence in him. Well, if that's you, let me encourage you also to take God at his word. When you're in Christ, God is no longer angry with you. There may be times when you doubt that. There may be times when you fall into sin, when you feel that God is angry with you, when he feels like he's looking upon you with a face of fury. Or there may be times when you are suffering with some sickness or some difficulty in your life. You may be tempted to think that this is coming. God is doing this because he is displeased with you. We saw that in the book of Job, didn't we? As Job went through his terrible trial, he thought God must be angry with him. He thought he was suffering because he was the object of God's wrath. At one point he says this, Oh, that you would hide me until your wrath is past. But God was not angry with Job. And if you're in Christ, God is not angry with you. He has hidden you in Christ and now his wrath is past. And so that means if you're trusting in Jesus Christ this morning, no matter what your failings, no matter what you may be tempted to think because of your feelings or your circumstances or your suffering, God is not angry with you. You are not the object of his wrath. You are a child of his grace. His face is always turned towards you. It's always smiling and never frowning. Maybe this afternoon you want to spend more time thinking about verses 24 and 25. Revel in the glory of the cross as you consider your salvation. Examine its glory through the perspective of this word propitiation. And let God's word lead you into increasing joy. Let it move you to thankfulness. And may it motivate us to a greater and a deeper obedience that Jesus Christ may be glorified. Let's pray together. Dear Lord God, we thank you again for your word. We thank you so much for our Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you uh, that when we come to you in his name, that when we are found in him, we have nothing to fear. We thank you that we can come to you knowing that your smile is always upon us. Knowing that we enjoy your abundant grace. Father, we pray for any this morning who, who, who may be prone to fear. We ask, Lord, that you would grant them faith to take hold of all that Jesus Christ has done. Help them to live in the light of the cross and the propitiation that you have made by his blood. We thank you that you have done for us what we never could. And we give you our praise again this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>